Welcome everyone this morning. God bless you. Thank you for being here at Woodburn Baptist Church in the overflow. Uh, guys, you're part of worship as well. We love you. Thank you for being here today. Uh, Aaron and Jordan, thank you for leading back there. We appreciate uh, your efforts in worship so much. Uh, Perry, Oklahoma, Franklin Campus, everybody who joins us by video, we love you so much and uh, are always honored to have you be a part of our worship services here. God bless all of you. Open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. Old Testament book of Ruth, it's right after the book of Judges, uh, because the two actually go together. Judges and Ruth uh, are related books, and it's important to remember that. I always take two Sundays out of November, this is the second. I take two Sundays out of November simply to talk to the church uh, about our church's vision, about our obligations and our privileges as church members. Last week we talked about commitment in terms of the triple two challenge, trying to spend uh, our time in a balanced way so that we can grow and serve the Lord. Uh, today I want to talk a little bit about the future of our church, our, our vision, but I'm going to do it in a very different way, um, led of the Spirit to the book of Ruth to talk about our commitment uh, to uh, the Lord in, in terms of our commitment to one another. So I want to talk about commitment. It's hard to talk about commitment, honestly, in our culture. Ours is a, is a choice culture. We're very accustomed to having a lot of options always, and we've all learned to leave our options open, have we not? So the idea that we would make commitments that we would keep uh, even when it gets hard, the idea that we would make commitments and promises that we would keep even when it hurts us is almost foreign, almost foreign. And that's what makes the gospel so difficult to preach in our day, in our culture, in our neighborhoods, because people simply do not relate to the kind of commitment that, that the gospel represents. I want to read to you seven questions currently being used by a, a missionary organization in Asia called Asian Access, A, A2 it's called. Now I'm not talking about something that, that was years ago, I'm talking about right now today, even as we speak, these missionaries are doing mission work in, in all through Southeast Asia, but, but especially in one particular region that is predominantly Hindu. Predominantly Hindu. And for these individuals to respond to the gospel, it means they will be persecuted, that their lives are in danger. So when they preach the gospel, they want to make sure that people understand exactly what the stakes are. So before they consider them ready for salvation, they ask seven questions. Listen to these questions. Number one, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Question number one, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? They understand that if they come to Christ, it means they will probably lose their families. Question two, are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to lose your job? Number three, are you willing to go back to your village, forgive those who persecute you, and share the love of Christ with them? Forgive those who persecute you. Some of us have trouble forgiving just because people hurt our feelings. But, but, but here, this part of the world, the gospel requires forgiving those who torture, persecute you. Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith. Number six, are you willing to go to prison? And number seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? Converts in this part of the world 
are asked those seven questions and then they sign. They sign in order to signify that they were not in any way coerced into converting. They sign their name at the bottom of these seven questions, understanding that if the government catches them, if the government finds this document and realizes they've converted to Christianity, they will be put in prison for a minimum of three years. And the one who evangelized and the one who shared the good news with them will go to prison for a minimum of six years. I, I, I don't know, but my hunch is there's something about persecution that focuses the mind and maybe something that focuses the church. And I'm afraid that most churches, ours included, unfortunately, and, and I love this church more, more than anything, but, but, but I'm afraid that, that most churches in, in America are not focused in this way. We do not seem to understand what is at stake. We do not seem to understand, number one, what Christ has done for us or what he's worth. And we certainly don't seem to understand what a true commitment to Christ entails. I want us to take a look at it, and we'll do so by looking at the book of Ruth, just the beginning. This is an amazing picture of commitment. And I want us to learn some lessons this morning by looking at, at, at Ruth's example. Remember, the, the, the book of Ruth is written during the time of the judges. So if you've got your Bible open to the book of Ruth, turn back maybe one page, or in my case, it's on the same page. Go back to the last verse in the book of Judges. This will give you some context. The last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So as we... Begin the story of Ruth, understand it's a time of incredible chaos, spiritual chaos, political chaos. It's just, it's chaos. There's very little security. There is very little order. And it's a very, very difficult, difficult time to be alive. This is the situation when we begin the story of Ruth. And this is so beautiful. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Listen, and let's learn lessons about commitment. In those days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. Okay, it was already bad. Now we're starving. There's a famine. So a man from Bethlehem, okay, let that sink in. Bethlehem, how do you know about the town of Bethlehem? Okay, that's where Jesus will be born a long time later. Okay, a long time later, but don't forget to connect the dots. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Milan and Kalion. Okay, just stop right there. Those two names, Milan and Kalion, they mean something like puny and sickly. Thanks, Mom. Their names mean puny and sickly. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, said it again, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Milan and Kalion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. 
With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husband's? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. It's funny, that's a passage that that we read at weddings. Uh, But truly, this is not a wedding. This is a woman talking to her mother-in-law. Let that sink in. Her mother-in-law. A few years ago, um, a man named Gary McPherson did a a scientific study of children taking music lessons. I'll do a quick scientific study myself. How many of you as children studied music of some kind? You took piano lessons or an instrument, you were in the band, flutophone. How many of you? Yeah. Oh my goodness, almost all of you. How many of you still play flutophone? Yeah. How many of you still play the instrument that you've had lessons in? Oh my, isn't that interesting? What happened? That's what Gary McPherson wanted to find out. What, what, what happens? What happens when, when so many children take music lessons, but so few become adults who are, who are musicians? So he studied them. He looked at all of the factors of of a large sample of children who were entering music lessons. He looked at IQ. He looked at uh, a sense of innate musical ability. He studied the children who already seemed to have a natural sense of rhythm. He looked at socioeconomic issues. He studied these kids in all of the ways that they could be studied. And he found that truly there was one factor one factor that seemed to enable him to predict which children would go on to become accomplished musicians. What do you think that factor was? He realized that he could predict it on day one of lessons. On on day number one, before the child had taken her first lesson, he could predict because he asked a series of questions. And the question that turned out to matter most was a simple question, how long do you think You'll be taking music lessons. 
How long do you think you'll continue your lessons? Ask them that before they even started lessons. And it's interesting because he got all kinds of answers. Some children said, I expect I'll take lessons for three weeks. I expect that I'll take lessons until the end of sixth grade. I'll probably take lessons, I don't know, to maybe high school. Kids gave all kinds of answers. But there were a few kids who said, I'll be taking music lessons the rest of my life. I'm going to be a musician. Of the children, which of those children do you think became accomplished musicians? The ones who on day one said, I'll be taking music lessons the rest of my life. It's a simple, simple principle. Commitment shapes your life. It is our commitments that shape our lives. The things that you devote yourself to, the, the, the decisions you make, you make them once and for all and you never revisit them again. You just commit yourself. These are the things that shape your life. It's why I, I, I lead us to the book of Ruth today because you see an incredible example of, of commitment. Ruth's example of commitment is extraordinary. Did I mention this is her mother-in-law? Now, this is a family that experiences such incredible tragedy, incredible tragedy. Everybody in the family tree dies except for Ruth, Orpah, and the mother-in-law. All of the men, every man in this family is wiped out. These are the only survivors, and it turns out to be Ruth and her mother-in-law face-to-face. So just think about it. If your family tree took a hit like this, would you want to be left with your mother-in-law? But there's this amazing commitment that Ruth makes. Don't, don't miss that. Now, now, honestly, there are two women who make commitments. One of them is Orpah. She makes a commitment too. Now, we don't know anything about the rest of her story. We don't know what happens after this moment when she walks away from Naomi. And you can't blame her for walking away, I, I guess. I, I mean, understand the situation. When the story begins, Naomi, the mother-in-law, she's the foreigner in the land. She and her husband had moved into this region years and years and years ago because of a famine. Naomi's the foreigner. And and Ruth and Orpah, they're at home. They're living in their native land. They're living near their families. They're living near their mothers. And now they've lost their husbands. They've lost their husbands. And Naomi has no man in her family left. No one left except these daughters-in-law. And she's in a foreign country. So it's Naomi who decides to go back home. Naomi decides to go back home to Bethlehem. Now, Ruth and Orpah are really under no obligation necessarily to follow their mother-in-law. Their husbands are dead. They're no longer bound to her whatsoever. And yet they both get up and decide to go with her. Now, that's amazing. They decide to go with her, to go to a land that is not theirs. This means they're leaving their mothers, their fathers. They're leaving all of their cousins. They're leaving the only home they've ever known in order to go and and saddle themselves to their mother-in-law for the rest of their lives. That's why at some point on the trip, Naomi turns around to both daughters-in-law, and she says to them, you all just go home. There's not a reason in the world that you should follow me around. I have nothing for you. You're young, I'm old. And God has dealt bitterly with me, she says. 
I'm not going to be having any more husbands, and I won't be having any more babies. I've got nothing for you two women. You need to go back home, go back to your mother's, your father's homes, and try to start over. You still have a chance to get married again. You may have a future. I have no future. Turn around. All three women cry and cry and cry, but, but Orpah's the first one. She just simply kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she goes back home. Now, I have no idea, and you don't either, whether that's a good choice or a bad choice. I have no idea what this means for Orpah. But I can tell you one thing. In that decision right there that Orpah makes, and in the decision that Ruth makes, both of those women either step into or out of God's purpose for their lives. Are you listening to me? With, with the commitments that you make, you always either step into or out of God's purpose for your lives. Ruth steps into God's purpose for her life when she looks at Naomi and says, Don't tell me to turn around. Don't ask me to stop following you. Because wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. May, do, may God do more to me, and, and, and even more also, if anything but death parts me and you. you. Understand? She makes this incredible, incredible voluntary commitment. And when she does this, she steps into God's plan for her life. You should be very, very careful what you commit to. You should be very, very careful what you devote yourself to because your devotion, your commitments will shape your life. With every commitment, you will either step into or out of God's purpose for your life. I, I hope this is sinking in. Do you understand? What I'm saying is that your, your love for it, your devotion to the God in heaven is expressed by the commitments you make on earth. Your commitment to God in heaven is expressed by the by the commitments that you make on earth. And in shaping our lives and moving us forward in his purpose, God uses people. God uses people. And everything that God is doing in your life right now and all of the ways that he wants to make you more like Christ, you've got to understand he's going to use people to do that. God simply uses people. That's why you have in your life right now the very people you need and the very people you deserve. God brings the people into our lives that are necessary. God gives us the people that he can use to shape us to be more like him. The, the people that are in our lives are, are tools that God will use to help us accomplish his purposes. God uses people. That is why when Ruth is going to step into God's purpose for her life, that purpose involves a very important commitment, not just to God, but to a person. So it's not just that God uses people. God uses committed people. God uses people who know how to make a promise and keep it even when it hurts. God uses people who know how to make a decision one time and don't have to revisit it over and over and over. God uses people who know how to make commitments. God uses committed people. So in this moment of commitment, do you understand? Ruth steps into God's purpose for her life, and that purpose involves Naomi. 
It involves a lifelong commitment to this woman who's her ex-mother-in-law, but now just simply becomes the one to whom she commits her life. Wherever you go, I will go. We're connected from now on. What happens to you happens to me. I'm bringing this up because we're the church. We are the church. Now, in this sermon, I'm speaking a lot to Woodburn Baptist Church folks in this room in the overflow, but if you're listening to me on video, you need to understand I'm talking to you in, in your local congregation as well, whether it's Franklin Campus or, or, or Perry, Oklahoma, or wherever you hear the sound of my voice. This applies to you and your local congregation, but, but understand, we are the church. We are the church, and, and everything the Bible teaches about the church reminds us that we are all together the body of Christ. And that there's simply no way to talk about love for God in heaven if we don't at the very same time talk about love for brothers and sisters here on earth, brothers and sisters in this church. Our relationships are very, very important. Our commitments to one another are very, very important. Our commitments will shape us. And there is a very, very slim chance that we will ever find God's purpose for our lives without one another. We are in this thing together. We need each other. We're connected to one another. I believe with all of my heart that God called you to this church just like he's called me to this church. We are the church. And our commitment to God is all wrapped up in, in, in a solid commitment to one another. We're in this thing together. I was, I was reading an article written by Sebastian Younger. He's a journalist. He's one of the journalists who had been embedded with a particular, uh, a particular troop of soldiers in one of the most dangerous parts of Afghanistan. Sebastian just talks about the way these men related, these men and women related to one another on the battlefield, a, a place of constant danger and constant constant vigilance. Of course, he recognized right from the start that there was a very strict chain of command. You know that. The military has privates and the military has generals and everybody in between. There's a very strict chain of command. But on the battlefield, in the day-to-day -day place where soldiers depend on each other, in situations of danger, he found that there's a kind of freedom or, or even an obligation to reprimand each other all the time, even sometimes reprimanding a, a commanding officer. And it tended to be over very, very small details. Because it turns out when your life is in danger, very, very small things matter a great deal. The example that Sebastian Younger gives is, is a day when they were marching uh, marching to a very dangerous place, and one of the privates had his boots untied. And another private looked down and noticed that his buddy's boots were untied. And he immediately began to reprimand this man for his untied boots. And honestly, for a moment, the journalist, Sebastian Younger, couldn't understand what the big deal was over untied boots. I mean, is he just afraid that he looked sloppy? Is he just making fun of him like a kid? But then he began to realize that in battle, if suddenly, if, if there were an attack, if there were a moment when these men needed each other, all of a sudden you got one guy who can't count on his feet. You understand? 
If all of the sudden that the enemy attacks, here's a guy who's going to trip over his own feet. In the very first moment, everybody was depending on him. And therefore, there was this incredible sense that what happens to him matters to all of us. It's this incredible interconnection that he found with these men who were fighting together in a situation where fighting really mattered. What I need you to understand is in the church, it's the same way. In the church, it's the very same way. I know that so often in our situation for us, church has, has more of an association with just going to church. And this is something that you do on a beautiful Sunday morning, some of us, and you put on nice clothes, and if everybody gets up on time, and if everybody feels like it, and if there's nothing else to do, or nobody decides that the Denny's breakfast buffet sounds better, I mean, then we come to church. And we think of church as just a place you go when you sort of feel like it. Church is a place you go when your life's going particularly well or you've got something nice that you want to wear. You understand? So many people just think of church as something you do in leisure. Something you do. But if you get there and it rubs you the wrong way, you can just get mad and go home. Or or if you get there and it turns out the people aren't really your kind of people, you just don't ever have to go back. I mean, this is our casual attitude toward going to church. But, But I need you to understand, church isn't something you go to. The church is what we are. Church is what we are. We are the church. When we walk out of this place, this is just a building. You and I, we're the church. We are the temple of the living God, the scriptures say. And we need each other for that. I depend on you, and you depend on me. And you say, well, Brother Tim, I can worship just fine at a home by myself. No, you can't. You can't. I know you pretty well. You won't anyway, but if you could, you, you would. You understand? You can't. You need us. We need each other. We are connected. Paul says if anyone is in Christ, then he's connected to all the others in Christ. You're baptized into Christ and therefore joined with everyone else who's in Christ. You are not. You are not in this as some sort of freelance Christian. You're connected to the church. And that means what happens to you, what happens to me. We need each other. We depend on each other. There is no way that we can do this without each other. You know, when I, when I read the book of Ruth, when I start that story, my heart just breaks, breaks for this woman, Naomi. For one thing, if you ask women what their number one fear is, for most women, the fear is just to be alone. That, that is the driving fear of, of, of most women. That they, just, they, they fear being alone. So understand, Naomi is living every woman's nightmare. She loses her husband. She loses her son. She has no grandchildren. She has no body. She is alone in the world, and she tells her daughters-in-law, just go, leave me. I have nothing. I am empty. And I look at it, and for the life of me, I really don't understand. I don't understand why, why one woman, why one family would experience so much tragedy. I, I really can't wrap my head around that. You understand that there are two famines, that they have to leave their land and go and try to make a living in another place. I mean, and there, everybody dies. I mean, every man in the family tree is cut off. Every single man in this family tree is cut off. And, and at this point in the story, this woman has nothing. This woman has 
nothing, and her daughters-in-law, that they have nothing. How do you even begin to fathom, how do you begin to explain why one family, why one woman should have to experience so much tragedy? Well, think it over. Think it over. Where were they from originally? Bethlehem. They're from Bethlehem. So when everybody dies in, in Moab, Naomi's going to go back to, back to her land, back, back to Bethlehem. And, and in this particular moment, it's, it's Ruth who decides to, to go with her. And Did you know how the story goes? Do you know how this flows out? Do you know who Ruth marries? She marries another man. And, and it turns out that Ruth becomes the grandmother of who? King David. King David. And then if you follow the line of David all the way through all the children and grandchildren for a number of generations, who comes out of the line of David? Jesus. Jesus. Do you think it's an accident that the family tree of Jesus is being attacked like this? Do you think it's an accident that that the family tree of Jesus has the men just, just being attacked one after another? I mean, cut down one after another. Do you see anything accidental about that? Here's what I think. I think what you see right here is an example of how the enemy works, how the devil works. The devil will attack today in order to rob you of tomorrow. You understand? The devil will attack today in order to try to steal, in order to try to destroy what's waiting tomorrow. Here's the thing. Ruth has no idea. Has no idea how God's going to use her life. She makes this incredible commitment, and in making this commitment, she steps into God's purpose, but she has no idea what God is going to do. But understand, the enemy seems to know. The enemy seems to know exactly, exactly how to attack and exactly how to try to destroy the future of this family, the future of this family that includes King David and Jesus the Messiah. The enemy seems to know how to attack. We are always somehow ignorant, but the devil, he's not that powerful, but he is pretty smart. And he does know how to attack. And his tendency is to attack today in order to ruin tomorrow. In order to try to steal the vision, the future of tomorrow. So this is what I want to say. With all of my heart, I believe that God has an incredible future for our church. I don't think our church is special. I don't think our church is unique in all the world. I think God wants to use every church. I think God will use any heart that surrenders completely to him. I believe that God wants to set churches on fire. And God wants to reach the world. I believe he's just waiting for churches who will step into his purpose with solid commitment and let him use them. I believe that with all of my heart. And I believe that's the church that we are. We are that church that will be committed to God and will step into his future. We want whatever he wants for us. But you need to understand what he has for us. It's something we experience together. It's not my future. It's not my vision. It's not my idea. Do you understand? The future we have is God's future for us. And it's for us together. It's for us together. You can't experience it without me. And I can't experience it without you. And as a matter of fact, we need everybody all the way down your pew. This is something that God has for us together. We have to be committed. 
We have to be committed to God, but that expression, the expression of our commitment to God is going to be a solid commitment to one another. And the devil knows that if he can't get us to forsake God, and chances are he can't. He probably can't get you to get mad at God or get you to leave God. But if he can make us mad at one another, if he can get us to forsake one another, do you understand? The devil still wins. He still wins. We are in this thing together. And God has a future for us Together And the devil attacks us today in order to rob us of the future God has for us tomorrow. We cannot, cannot let the devil destroy our future in his attacks on our fellowship today. Does that make sense? It's actually a a beautiful thing. Ruth's commitment to Naomi is a beautiful thing. And whenever you see people who will just simply be committed to one another, no matter what, it's a beautiful thing. I've been your pastor for 16 years. I've been in the fellowship of Woodward Baptist Church for much, much longer. Most of you know that story. I started out when I was probably 16 years old. I've been in this church a long time. What is important for me to remember is in many, many ways, I am, I, I am shaped by you all. I've been shaped as a pastor. I've been shaped as a husband. I've been shaped as a father. I've been shaped in, in every way as a man, as a believer, by my commitment to you all and your, and your commitments to me. I am, I think, a better man because of my life with you. And that's exactly how it works. You understand that every one of us, we're either going to become better or somehow worse. We're either going to be brought closer to God or further away from God. We're either going to step deeper into his purposes for us or we will step out of his purposes in a large way because of the way we relate to one another. I would want to think that if anybody ever leaves our church, if they leave this fellowship, that they leave better than when they came in. You know what I'm saying? We have a tremendous influence, a tremendous capacity to leave a mark on one another's lives. And we're doing it every single day by the way we make and fulfill our our, our commitments. This really is just simply something that, that I'm bringing from the book of Ruth. This is from cover to cover in the Bible, and especially the New Testament. Take out a pencil and a piece of paper and write down some verses. I want you to look these up in this week. These are the the one another's that you find in the New Testament. These are one another's. In other words, since the relationships that we have with each other are so important, Scripture continues to give a number of commands, a number of admonitions of how we're going to deal with one another. Because in the church, there's almost nothing as important as the integrity of our fellowship with one another. So let's go. You don't have to look them up now. Look them up later. John 13, 34 says, love one another. Love one another. In this way, will the world know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We we, we love one another, no matter what. 
Romans 12.5. Romans 12 has some good ones. Romans 12.5 says this, be devoted to one another. Be devoted to one another. That, that's commitment. That's commitment. Be devoted to one another. Brother Tim, what if I don't like everybody? Well, have you really read Ruth? Did you follow Naomi? This is a woman who named her children, you know, sickly and puny. I mean, I mean, she did. She just nearly named her son stomach virus. I mean, she did. This is a really, really, I mean, depressed woman. This woman is just bitter. I mean, everything about her is bitter. If you ask her how she's doing, she'll tell you, oh, my goodness, she'll tell you the longest story. And you think, oh, my goodness. You know, Naomi doesn't know that when people say, how are you, know, Naomi? They don't really want to know. She hasn't caught on to that. She'll just tell them on and on. She is just, oh, my, the, just the biggest wet blanket ever. And Ruth has a chance to escape her. But she says, no, no, it, it's, it's devotion. It, honestly, if it were easy to love everybody, we'd all love each other. It's not easy. It takes the power of God, but it also takes commitment. It's a decision we make up front. I, I will be committed to you. I will be devoted to you. And I will not revisit that decision later when you're on my nerves. It, it's devotion. Romans 12, 5. Romans 12, 10. Honor one another. That's beyond just loving and liking. It's honor. That means we show one another, every other person, an extreme kind of honor. In other words, I'm going to put you first. If someone's to get recognition and reward, I want it to be you. I, I honor you. This is what the scripture says we do for one another, no matter what. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with one another. Rejoice with one another. I know there's a lot of complaining we could do all the time, but guess what? There's a lot of rejoicing we could do too. Why don't we do the rejoicing part? Because as far as I can see, it never says complain with one another. Rejoice. There's so much rejoicing to be done. Romans 12, 15. Galatians 5, 13. Serve one another. Serve one another. That means when I walk in this place, it's not about me. It's not about me, and it's not about you either. When I come in, I'm going to be all about trying to make sure that you have your needs met. And when you walk in, you're going to do the very same thing. We all walk in, and we don't have to think about ourselves, because guess what? If this is working the way it's supposed to work, I don't have to think about myself. I've got all of you that are going to, going to take care of me. And I'm going to take care of you. And if we just do that, you understand, that's a wonderful, wonderful way to live. Everybody wants to go to that church. You serve one another. Galatians 6.2. Carry one another's burdens. Carry one another's burdens. Honestly, sometimes in church life, we add to one another's burdens. We just make it worse. But in every single day, in every single way, I want to find a way to make your burden lighter. Carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. Forgive one another. You want to know a secret? Forgiving in reverse is very hard. It's very hard. It's very, very hard to forgive in reverse. When I think about well, what you've done to me in the past, I can carry that for years. And honestly, some of you do. You carry stuff for years. You really have to let it go. Forgiving in reverse is difficult. But, but let me tell you a secret. Forgiving in advance is actually pretty easy. 
forgive in advance. So here's the thing. Since the Bible says forgive one another, which tells us we don't have any option here. It's a commandment. No matter what, we got to forgive. Understand? we got to forgive no matter what. So why don't we just agree that we're just going to forgive it all in the future too? That means whatever you do from now on, it's already forgiven. I've already decided I'm not going to get revenge. I'm not going to try to find a way to hold a grudge. I'm just going to forgive you in advance. Whatever you ever do to me, it's already forgiven. It's a commitment that we make to follow God's word and to honor one another and forgive. Do you understand? Just forgive it in advance. Right now, make a decision. Whatever anybody ever does, I am not going to carry that. Forgive. Forgive. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another. Encourage one another. 1 Peter 4.9, Offer hospitality to one another. That means you got to have me over to your house. Didn't hear any amens. Yeah, we think of hospitality primarily as letting people come into your house. And honestly, we need to do a lot of that. But, but truly, hospitality doesn't begin in opening the door of your house. Hospitality begins by opening the door of your heart. It's, it's the hospitality of heart that we need. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. Now in church, the temptation is to get together and confess other people's sins. Am I missing something in the translation? No. If you want to talk about somebody's faults at church, start with your own. Confess your sins to one another. And in the same verse... James 5, 16, pray for one another. Pray for one another. I'll be really honest with you. I need to know you're praying for me. I'm in way over my head. Life's hard sometimes. Church life's hard sometimes. You can give me an amen on that one. We need each other. You need to know I'm praying for you. We need to know that we're in this together. we got a giant building being built out there. I, I, we need to know we're in this together. I need to know when the bill comes, there are going to be other people here to help pay it. You understand? We're truly in this together. And the only way we can step into God's future for our church is if we make solid commitments to one another. It's... Not very different from what Ruth said to her mother-in-law at the crossroads there when she looked back at that woman and said, don't ever ask me to leave you. For wherever you go, I will go. And where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And let nothing but death come between me and you. Brothers and sisters, that's what's called commitment.
Your commitments will shape you. And the commitments you make on earth will cause you either to step into or out of God's purposes for your life. If we're going to be committed to God in heaven, we have to be committed to one another. Pray with me. Lord, it's not the kind of commitment we see in our lives very often anymore. We read those verses at weddings, and half the weddings, Lord, end up in divorce, Lord. People don't keep promises like this. They'll follow like Orpah. They'll follow until the road gets difficult and then turn back. We'll make promises and keep them as long as it's easy and convenient. But God, I pray that in this church, you will raise up robust promise keepers. Lord, I pray that you would raise up robust encouragers and forgivers. Lord, people who know how to show hospitality of heart. Lord, people who will dream a great big dream, not just for themselves, but for the church. Lord, things that we can experience together and things that we can do together that we could never, ever do on our own. Oh, God, it would be easy for any of us on any given day just to walk away and start fresh somewhere else. It would be easy, Lord, just easy maybe to, to just give up and get mad. But, Lord, you have called us to be devoted to one another. Lord, we're always going to love you most of all. We're always going to lift you up highest. Our highest commitment will always belong to you. But Lord God, remind us that there really is no commitment to you outside of an everyday solid commitment to your people. We are all like members of the same body. So Lord, help us to move together and feel together, work together, stay together. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, but for the sake of the church. Amen.